joining me for another episode of the spicy pecan podcast thank you for checking in again guys i appreciate the love i hope you enjoyed last week's episode i actually got a bunch of people to hit me up about that so i know that you enjoyed it and i appreciate the feedback um I'm my portion this week is going to be a little short because I really want to get to the interview real powerful interview we or I interviewed Heather Jones she is a science teacher in the Newark school district here in New Jersey Um, and she you know she has a really unique perspective I wanted to have a conversation about how we are approaching going back to school and how we're going to be having some really hard conversations now that we're going back to school, especially depending on, you know, different age ranges. So anything that interests me or I think, you know, would interest you, um, you know, obviously I'm going to deliver that. But she just has a really unique perspective, very powerful voice, the way that she explains things. Um, She can take a very complex issue and make it pretty simple. You know, obviously she's a school teacher, so... I really hope you guys enjoyed that, but I did want to touch on a couple of, uh, well, one thing in particular in the current events this week, Jada, Jada, why Jada, Jada, why Jada, whew, hard week for the Smith family, um, actually, you know what, that interview went really well, I felt like, um, like I've said, you know, actually after I saw it. Um, a lot of people are in therapy to get to exactly where these two people are, you know, the way that they were able to have this conversation in public. I don't care how much practicing you did. It's still different when the cameras are on and you know that that is going to be submitted over the internet and you can't take it back. Um, so they didn't have to do it, but the fact that they did, and they did it with a lot of poise, um, Marriage is supposed to be about forever. So I think that they're an example of what forever looks like, you know, regardless of the road that it takes you to get there. And just my honest opinion, you know, you could call me whatever you want. Um, People do. But I thought that that was pretty petty of that young man. You know, I understand people got to eat. People got to make money. Music business is hard. You're dropping an album. It's been some years People probably not checking for you like that, but um, I thought that that was pretty shady. And to release a whole docu-series behind it, explaining, you know, you know, getting rid of a secret and things like that. I get that. I get that. But I didn't get any part of his story saying that he was victimized and that a part of his healing had to be publicly um you know, get rid of, getting rid of that secret. So I just thought it was in bad taste. That's just my opinion. Um, he could have kept that to himself, dropped his album. And I felt like, you know, life would have just gone on, but, um, every marriage is tested, right? Good luck to them. If they love it, you know, if they're doing good, I'm happy for them. More importantly, uh, Brianna Taylor's murders, murderers are still out there, not arrested. Um, in a recent protest, uh, Portia Williams, Tamika Mallory, uh, a couple of rappers. There was a lawyer that got arrested, um, while they were peacefully protesting 
just a couple of days ago, and they're actually being charged with felonies. So um, the theory is, because this happened in a suburb, um, the theory behind that is the government is trying to criminalize taking protests to the suburbs because that's really where, you know, people start to get afraid and things like that. But this was a peaceful protest. So neither here nor there. Um, I did, though, on my Instagram page, I did post the phone number if you want to call the district that a bunch of people were arrested in. Um, I called this morning a whole bunch of times. The basically what they were hoping was, you know, you flood the phone lines, ask why these people have been arrested, why they've been charged with a felony. Um, all of us kind of got to do our little part here and there where we can. So anytime I have an opportunity to call a number, do a letter, do a petition, give a little money, um, explain something, you know, whatever. We all got to get in where we fit in. So if you want to help out in that regard, um, you could check out my um, my Instagram page. So I did want to mention one last thing, though, before we hop into the interview. Very cool. Even though we don't always get it right in this country, other countries do get it right. Um, in London, a statue of a UK slave trader was taken down and replaced with a statue of a Black Lives Matter protester. Um, the Black Lives Matter protester's name is Jen Reed, and the slave trader's name was Edward Colston. So good old Eddie out and, you know, Jen is in. So and it's the cutest statue ever. I love it. She has this little jean jacket on. Um, it's just this is progress. You know, that is moving forward. That is changing the pace. Instead, we're still fighting to keep hatred, you know, in the shape of 10 statues. But um, let's pray for all of our people. <laughs> um, listen. Every week, I, I'm still going to be doing my commercials in terms of the different businesses that I'm associated with, but I think it's important to highlight minority-owned businesses, especially at this time, you know, building community. I did want to highlight one uh, business that I saw online and just thought was really, really cool, homemade jewelry. It's called April's Jewels. So if you text Jewels, J-E-W-E-L-S, to 910 461-1554. You'll get more information about uh, custom handmade jewelry, all um, uh, minority-owned business, and they have some really, really cool stuff. So check that out, guys. Make sure we're supporting and uh, make sure you're letting me know about different businesses in your area so I can highlight them. It's an honor for me, you know, definitely. So listen, we know that we're going back to school. We know that funding is threatening to be cut if we do not. So, uh, you know, what is this actually going to look like? Um, I want to hop right into the interview because I think that it's going to um, shed a light on, you know, for all of us, even, you know, for people who have children, um, but specifically for everyone, even people who do not have children, um, we touch on the importance of community around schools and I think that, you know, it's really important for everyone just to catch the vibe that we're trying to throw out. So um, I hope you guys enjoy the interview. Heather, thank you so much for joining us this week. I'm so appreciative of your time. Um, let the audience know, can you give us a little bit about your background? Um, I'm Heather Jones, I'm 40 years old, um, born and raised in New Jersey, North New Jersey. 
um, and I, Brick City. Um, uh, I'm married. I have one five-year-old son. Um, I've been teaching middle school science since 2008. Um, I've always taught in a urban school district. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother is a urban school district middle school science teacher yeah um she's been she's taught various things throughout my life um but this is my mother my mother's going into her 43rd year of teaching wow. um, so education been a part of my life my whole life absolutely absolutely well, even my older brother my older brother is an engineer but he's also a college professor so we've always just had education you know yeah important to us. Let me ask you a question, just piggybacking off of that. Your mom worked in urban districts. Why did you decide to follow in her footsteps and not go in a different direction? It's actually an interesting story because Mm -hmm. I grew up never wanting to be a teacher. Okay. I grew up seeing the stress of my mom and how frustrated she would get with the fact that she wanted to do so much for her kids and like her hands were tied a lot. And so my mom had a lot of stress growing up. She had a great schedule. (laughs) Um, Wasn't necessarily good for us because she was always home when we were home. But um, I did not want to grow up and feel, you know, underappreciated. Like I felt like my mom was and all this kind of stuff. And I actually went to school. When I went to college, I went to college for physical therapy. Um, so I did work in that field. Um, I was a biology and a psychology major. So I worked in a couple of different, not related yeah. fields at all. I, I did physical therapy. I did, I worked for the prosecutor's office at Essex County that dealt with domestic violence um, cases. Um, so that was using like my psychology background. Um, I worked for a pharmaceutical company mm-hmm. uh, that made cancer drugs. And okay. then I just kept saying, I'm not happy. I'm not happy. And then my husband, I got married in 2007. And at the end of 2007, he was like, when are you just going to become a teacher? Like you love kids. And even though you love science, like you can have so much of a better impact if you just suck it up. Right. <laughs> and so Newark Public Schools actually had a career fair. Um, in December of 2007 and I went and, um, I had taken like my praxis before that just to have something. My mom was always saying, well, take the praxis exam, which is a teacher's licensing exam. Um, take it just to have it under your belt. Right. Just take it. Cause I was tutoring and substitute teaching when I could, like I was always doing something like teaching, but I never wanted to fully jump in. And my mom was like, well, just do that just to have it under your belt. It's always good just to have. Um, and I went to that career fair and I was offered three jobs that night. Wow, um, and I called my husband and I said, I have these three offers. And he was like, you need to just sign. Yeah. And January 2nd, 2008, <laughs> I started teaching in Newark. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I don't want to even breeze over that. Cause that's a, that's a huge decision considering the fact that you could have made a whole bunch, a lot of, mo- you know, a whole lot more money somewhere else. And then Definitely. even deciding to teach to go to the communities that need it the most and mm-hmm. really keeping it all the way real are just not the easiest situations to jump into. Um, That's true. So that is um, extremely commendable. And thank you, hubby, <laughs> for pushing you. 
He's like, I know you don't want to go be your mother, but you might as well just go ahead and do it. Because I was always doing tutoring, um, mostly for free. You know, I was always mentoring kids at the church and things like, like I was always doing like education like things. Yeah. And he was saying, you, you, I know you don't want to do this, but I think this is who you are. This is, this is part of who you are. And, um, I jumped right in and, and I knew that it would be, you know, it's not a lucrative field in regards to pay. Um, but I read this one quote and I'm not trying to sound cheesy, but I read this one quote and I actually have it on my wall in my classroom that it says, real teachers don't do it for the income. They do it for the outcome. Mm. And when I saw that quote, I was like, you know what? Most teachers I know have a second job. That's just what it is. But I can't, no amount of money can give me the type of fulfillment that I get when my student's light bulb goes off or when they, I finally see them cross over into a level of maturity or things like that. So it's just something that I had to, had to suck it up and be like, you know what, who cares if you're going to grow up and be your mother, you know, (laughs) you know, she's a bomb mom. Yeah, she's a bomb, just throw it up, you know. (laughs) And then my mom was like, oh my God, you're becoming me. Uh Um, Even for four years in Newark, the last four years I was in Newark, I actually taught at the same school as my mom. So I was the sixth grade science teacher and she was the eighth grade science teacher. So when kids got to her, she would be like, kids got to her, she would be like, I know you learned this in sixth grade. Like, (laughs) I know. You can't act like you don't know this. I know what you know. Like, so I mean, that was interesting. (laughs) So jumping right in, because we're, we're, um, you know, fastly approaching the school year now. Um, What are... What are your opinions in terms of how prepared we are to actually go back and combat this virus? As a whole, I don't think just we're your prepared. opinion. Yeah, just your yeah. personal opinion. Um, how um, how do you think we're going to do it? I mean, this is a huge challenge ahead of you. I know teachers have pretty much gotten every you know flu and every cold and all that, so your immune systems are rock hard, but. You know, still, still, how are, what's your opinion about going back? Are you nervous or? Um, I'm nervous because I don't feel like, how can I say this nicely? I don't feel like urban areas are anywhere near as prepared as we need to be. Okay. Suburban areas, um, and I can't speak to rural because I don't have any experience with rural, but suburban areas tend to have smaller classes. They tend to have more technology and more, um, just supplies. Mm-hmm. Um, they tend to have more staff per student. Um, and these things are advantages in regards to keeping a building clean, sanitized, safe. Um, in my, in my school, we don't have, we're understaffed. We have a lot of students. So social distancing, right. I don't really see that. Um, I do think that we can successfully transition um, because I don't think that, I don't think there's a problem when it comes to um, like a remote learning. I think that the way that we went about it was too rushed. Okay. So that if, if we had already, if, if we had already established um, how to use the equipment, 
the, the, the means of communication between parents, teachers, and students. If we had gone over all of that, I think it would have been much more successful than it was. Um, but obviously that's nobody's fault. We were just all of a sudden told by, you got to shut schools down. Right, right. So everybody was left scrambling. And um, thankfully my district already had, like every student in my school already had a laptop from the school. So it was a smoother transition. And then there are other districts where they all of a sudden had to buy right. hundreds of laptops, if not thousands of laptops and, and try to make sure everybody had internet access. And, you know, there was, there was that whole scramble. I mean, even in my district, we had to, um, develop a relationship with, um, I think, Spectrum, so that everybody would automatically have um, a hotspot put on their laptop. Yeah. We, already, we already had students who did not have internet access at home. So, okay, how are they going to get the work? How are they going to, you know what I mean? Right. Um, so I think, I think that it can be a successful transition if we take the time to lay all the groundwork first. And, and I honestly feel like if we can't do that by September, then we need to start school in, in October. Because... Yeah. We can't be so worried about a date that everything else falls by the wayside. Yeah. That would be ineffective anyway. And I think it's possible though, but. I mean, so I guess it's just totally impossible for us to completely do remote learning. Um, in certain grades. High school, I think that's totally doable. Even, even to a certain extent, middle school, I think that's totally doable. But um, when you have kindergarten first graders who are not computer literate. Right. Um, my school district has a, a large um, immigration immigrant population. So a lot of those students, they need ESL services. They need bilingual um, education. You have students who are special needs. They have IEP, individual education plans. They can't do that by themselves at home. Very true. Very and true. It's, I didn't it's, think of that. it's unfair for us to be, expect a student who's only been in this country for six months, who no one at home speaks English, to be able to sit in front of a screen, understand and learn and respond in English. That's just yeah. not fair. Yeah. And it's not something that's unfair that's the child's fault. Like, their parents moved here. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't have any control. And so um, in an ideal situation, when you have a school that all the kids are fluent in, in English and all the, you know, the kids um, are computer literate enough, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I can see it totally being fine. I mean, the colleges do that. You can get full degrees online. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think part of it is the maturity based on the age of the child. You know, they have to be responsible to get their work done on time and, and even responsible enough to ask questions if they don't understand something. And then you've got that other part where language comes in, where um, learning styles come in, where the kids who need extra help don't have access to it. Or, right. you know, if, if you're a first grader, you need an adult home with you. Um, and that can cause a, a bunch of problems if, if, if mom and dad have to work or whoever you live with grandma has to work, then when are you going to, you know, have somebody sitting there with you to make sure that you're learning? Right. What um what physical changes have they said they've made to the building to make things safe? Or do they have like six foot tapes like you find in Wawa and things like that? Like what are they? Um, I went to my school building last week. Um, they're starting to do the things on the floor in the hallway. Um, they're actually, I think it's a better idea. Um, I think it's a really good idea to, they, they do it by the locker. So lockers aren't going anywhere. Kids could pull up tape on the floor. So if they paint one locker, 
a certain color different from the others that's better oh um, got you and they've taken like half they've taken furniture out so the classrooms that have desks and chairs right now those desks and chairs in the classrooms are six feet apart and the ones that don't fit are going i guess to storage they're in the hallway right now um because the building's not finished um i personally don't have um desks and chairs i have lab tables lucky so well you know <laughs> <laughs> i also have a sink in my room and and ventilation hoods and stuff is yeah the perks of being a science teacher um but and you can so, actually get away with wearing the full bubble suit because it's science. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> like I mean, listen, I don't know what's going to jump off, but I know it won't be jumping on me. Exactly. <laughs> but um, I mean, so it's easier to it's easier to socially distance in my classroom because I could just have people sit on the edge, but they would have to make my classes smaller, which I was saying, like urban classes. I mean, I've been in Newark and Elizabeth, and you know, at some point, I, at one point, I had thirty six students in wow. one class with just me that's crazy that is and, crazy and remarkably that class was an esl class and a special ed class at the same time and i had no help it was me 36 kids and you still got hair left <laughs> good lord god bless you you still smiling and everything but wow like, that sounds like a huge challenge. huge challenge huge challenge yeah, so when it comes to if you're already crowded in your classrooms and now people have to be six feet apart, and that's not just, a lot of people think it means six feet to the left or the right. That also means in front and behind. Yep. Which people somehow don't understand. Yeah. You can't be, you can't be, <laughs> you can't have two lines when people are right behind each other, but they're six feet to the left. Like, it, it means six feet all absolutely. the way around. So it makes absolutely a class no that sense. used to fit 36 can now fit, what, maybe six people if we do it that way? Wow. So, so definitely a lot of challenges, obviously. Um, and I would love to check with you in about a month just to see where you guys are. Because um, I'm sure whatever the initial setup is going to be, as we kind of get into the environment and figure out what works and what doesn't, um, it would be really interesting to know how the schools are tackling this. Um, but I want to jump in um, just because on this show, I talk about the importance of community involvement. And obviously, when we're talking about something in terms of education, especially in the districts that you're familiar with, the ones that you've worked in, how important does community play in the success of um, schools? specifically in black and brown districts? I think the community is extremely important. And I think that a lot of times in black and brown districts, um, members of the community underestimate their importance. A lot of times you get um, people who feel like, well, I don't have a kid that goes to school there. So, right. so I don't have any vested interest in the success, failure, events at that school and I, and I totally think that that's false. Um, the more people who are, especially in black and brown communities, I think, let me, let me rephrase that. White communities already have community involvement in their schools. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because they realize that it's important. 
So it doesn't need to be addressed because they're already doing that. And when it comes to our communities, you know, black and brown communities, you get, on the one hand, you get people who say, I don't have a member of my family in that school. So I don't really care what goes on there. Right. Then you have the people that they have a lot to say, but it's always bad. Oh, those kids, they come to school late or they're too loud or their playground is messy or they walk on my grass or, or whatever it is. Right. And then you've got the people. Then on the other side, you have people that are involved and they feel like I'm trying to be involved and it's not making a difference. Okay. And I think that there are several facets to community involvement with the school. I think that a lot of misinformation and just lack of information is among neighbors of schools and people in the community. Um, number one, there are a lot of, um, not all probably, but there are a lot of PTAs where you can be on the PTA in a school and you don't have to have a student in that school. I love that. And a lot of, a lot of people that. think that because it's called parent teacher association or whatever that you have to be a parent or a teacher and that's just not true in some districts right. i can't speak to all but i do know that there are some districts you don't have to be the parent of a student there or the guardian of a student there or and you don't have to work there to be part of it you can just want to be involved yeah and i think that that's very important um another thing that i think is important is for people even whether you have a child there or not you can be involved by getting your job to sponsor something. You can get your job to donate um, things. We, you know, we've had, for example, when I was in Newark, um, the last school I was in Newark um, was in the Ironbound section. So it's a, like a highly Portuguese, Spanish speaking population. We had, you know, restaurants donate food for certain functions. Um, we had, you know, um, local bands, you know, when we had like field day and stuff like that right, to donate, right. donate their time to, and it might seem like it's something small, but it's really not. Or even, you know, we've, we've had computers donated from people who, you know, worked in um, nearby colleges like Seton Hall when they revamped their um, computer labs. Labs, yeah. They normally, most universities, which a lot of people don't know, most universities usually just throw out their old computers. Oh, wow. There's nothing wrong with those right. computers. They're just a little outdated. But for a school that has no computers, I'll take, I'll take the five-year-old because I don't have any, right? So, and especially considering in Newark, particularly how many colleges and universities there are, right? So, right. You've got Essex County, you've got NJIT, you've got Rutgers North, you've got, you know what I'm saying? Just in the area, you've got Seton Hall, you've got Montclair State, you've got all these places who are going to upgrade. But all it really takes is somebody in the community saying, let me reach out to somebody and see if they have anything or are willing, right? Yeah. Or you can have something, you know, people sponsor, you know, rec league teams and things like that, right? So it doesn't always require a whole lot of time. It doesn't require a whole lot of money a lot of times. As a, minute, as a member of the community, you can just sit out in your front porch when you know the school bus drops kids off and just say good morning. Yep, absolutely. You can just say, you can just say, rather than coming out and saying get off my grass, you can, you can get out and say, it's good to see you at school today. You know what I'm saying? Like, yep. I'm proud of you for being on time or, Anything. Yeah, I think you, you hit, I, I think you hit, 
You hit on a huge point. I mean, one of the things that uh, we had talked about in when we first started talking about, uh, you know, interviewing you is you're either, when you're a part of the community, we can get it right in education or we'll have to deal with it later in other ways. So mm -hmm. does, like we were saying, like, does that mean that, you know, I'm at a stop sign and there's a kid that we could have helped through education, but instead he's holding me up because we know that the predecessor of crime is poverty and lack of education. So it is, it's almost imperative that we do it. And I would even call on people who are, who have moved out of the hood, you know, who have moved out of urban areas into suburbs. That's still where you're from. You know, you were able to make it out, but it's important that you lend that hand behind you. And one of the easiest ways to do it is interacting with the schools. You know, like you were saying, your job, you know, if you're a computer scientist, would you tutor someone and teach them how to code? You know, would you, would you, even if you didn't want to go to the school, would you sit in front of your computer, film a class and give that class out for free to people? Um, anything that you can do to push, push it ahead, you know, make, uh, push it forward. And even in addition to that, um, sometimes Sometimes students don't aspire to a whole lot because they don't know what the options are to aspire to, right. right? So if the only form of success they see is the person who didn't do anything with their education and is, you know, hustling on the corner or whatever, that's what they're going to aspire to. Right. So like, I know it was really important. Like I, I mentioned, my mom has always been important. Um, no matter what school my mom has ever taught at, she's always said, we need to have a career day here. And if that means I have to do it by myself, then I'm going to do it by myself. And um, it was very interesting when I was working at the same school in Newark as my mom. My mom headed up the career day and she was just drilling on my brother, who obviously is black. <laughs> mm -hmm. I need you to come speak to these kids. Now, my brother is a biomedical engineer and he, he, he teaches um, biomedical engineering at Rutgers you know, he's, he runs the lab. The lab is named after him. Um, oh, but, but wow. he's, a, you know, he's a six foot five, six foot six black guy mm -hmm. with an Afro coming to a school in Newark wearing, you know, a, a Iron Man t-shirt and some jeans. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. And the kids were looking at me like, that's really your brother? Yeah. And he starts explaining what he does. Like, even if you're thinking of a scientist, it doesn't mean what you think it means. Right. You can look like me. You can listen to the same type of, I, I come from where you live. Yeah, exactly. And if you're not given that, that choice, you don't know what's out there if nobody presents it to you. You know, Absolutely. and my, my students were just over the moon. Oh my God, you're the first of all, I got the same t-shirt he got, that, got that. You know, like, I was just like, don't wear the pick in your hair and all that. Like, yeah. you know, like, we work here. So, you know? and, and even after that point, every year, I intentionally, I teach a, a, a unit on like uh, properties of matter. So they deal with solid, liquid, gas, whatever. Every year that I've taught that my brother has come into my class and spent a day doing college level labs with my kids. So wow. they get a hands-on experience okay we started with this and now we're making these hydrogels they don't know what a hydrogel is but they're yeah. just like this, this is amazing 
And then you get kids that say, oh, I thought this is what engineers do. But if you get a person that looks like you that says, no, all an engineer does is solve problems. That's it. Yeah. Then it gets and their mind, it gets their mind to say, oh, I could do that. Yeah. And also people don't realize the math and sciences are, they're very liberating fields. I mean, you don't have to be the schmo with the suit on. Um, you know, a lot of places, like if you go on the West Coast, people coming in with skates and skateboards. Yeah. It's, it's a very freeing industry. Um, so that, because a lot of people, I think they, they get lost in the mix of having to conform. Yeah, that to, white lab coat. Right. Sterile shoes. You know what I mean? My brother's like, first of all, it's my lab. So if I don't exactly. feel like going, <laughs> if I don't feel like going because it's Monday, I ain't going. <laughs> That's exactly. number one. Number two is, it's not about me showing up nine to five every day. It's about the results. So if I get an idea, my brother has the liberty. If I get an idea at 12 midnight, I'm just going to my lab and work it out. Yeah. You know what I mean? So those options have to be presented. Even options like an illustrator coming in and saying, I always like to draw. And now half the books that are on here, those are my pictures. Yeah. You know, kids, kids, they see their talents and they don't see how that's going to make them money. Right. So they see the person who has the money and they're, they're maybe not living, you know, the most law abiding life. And they say, but they got money though. So that's what I'm going to do. Absolutely. It's still a vision of success, regardless of what you think about it or what the, you know, it's a vision of success that I can actually touch and feel, you know, I see, the, I see these guys every day, you know, yeah. um, but, but your brother coming in. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, but if a member of the community can show them any other option, yep. it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You, you like, you like singing. You don't have to be, you know, Beyonce. You could, right. you could find there there's somebody who, guess what? Somebody on the TV singing, ba da ba ba ba. Somebody got to write the words and somebody got to make up the beat and somebody got to set the engineer yeah. board when they're ready to record and somebody's got to, you yeah. know, so there's, there's ways to make money in everything. Even if you don't make it in the NFL, there are ways to work for the NFL, work for college yep. teams. And, you know, um, so it doesn't always have to be that, but, um, yeah. yeah, I love, I love that story about your brother. That's exactly what, um, what we need to get into, but, we need to do it in a way where we're being proactive. I'm from this community and I care how, where can I fit in? This is what I yeah. do for a living. This is where I live. Um, this is where I, whatever, what can I do? Where can I fit in, in the process? Oh, you're having a career fair in six months. Sign me up. I'm there. And I'm going to bring two of, you know, another two people that I know from this neighborhood who have done X, Y, and Z, you know? Yeah. I mean? But it's also important. Even after, even after that, like, I mean, like I said, this this is just what my family has done my whole life. So it's a, it's a little easier because it's like, look, you're my brother and this is what you're going to do. I'm right. going to babysit for you. <laughs> I'm going to watch your kids this weekend and you yeah. will do this lab with my students. But even in addition to that, you know, my brother has always said like, okay, well, anybody who even, even if you don't really know what you want to do, you know, in the summer, you know, I'll take 15 people from whether it's Newark, Elizabeth, Camden, train, urban places, mm -hmm. and just spend a, a, a month, a couple hours every day on a weekday in the summer watching what my graduate students do in my lab. You know what I mean? And it yeah. might spark an interest. And if you're not interested, fine. But then I have this other friend that does this, you know? 
he he makes video games. My brother has a friend who codes for video games. Yeah. So if people in the community even just volunteer to let somebody shadow them. Yes. I know yeah. you like playing video games, but you don't know what goes into it. You know what I'm saying? You might like engineering, but you might not really be good in math. But there are other things. Yeah, there's a lot of other things. Even emerging markets like these headsets, these VR headsets. If, I mean, if there was a, that's an emerging market. So there's, there's millionaires that have not yet been made off of that market. Mm -hmm. And the, the cool thing about like science and all the stuff that we kind of shy away from, the cool thing about those is it doesn't matter what you look like because exactly what you said, as long as one plus one equals two, as long as the results show, it's, it's less about your appearance and more about the data and the science. If you're building a video game or an educational program, no one necessarily knows who built it. You know what I mean? So it's less exactly. about that. And there are these fields, especially science, math, and you know, that that's where we actually need to be because there's so much freedom in those fields outside of being, you know, an entrepreneur. But yeah, that's, mm -hmm. we should be going to those fields in droves. Um, I love, I love your, uh, you have so much insight. And I think, I don't even know if you realize, but I guess you've just been in it for so long. You just, you, you dropped a couple of gems on me already. Um, just in, in wrapping up, this is a bigger, this is a, you know, a bigger subject that we'll end with, um, our history as it relates to public education and correctly teaching the history of, um, black and brown folks. How do you foresee the education system tackling this again? Because um, the books have to be rewritten. A lot of things have to get a lot more real. There are stories that have, um, you know, that need to be talked about. Um, and it's, it empowers us all when we empower the people who are suffering the most. It makes us all better. So in mm -hmm. saying that, how do you foresee the education, the public education system tackling the, the truth about black history and Hispanic and, you know, cause it all yeah. kind of blends into the, you know, the same thing, that history, how do you foresee them tackling this? Um, I think changing the way we educate about history, the change has to be, there has to be three, three major things that change. Number one, we need to change, um, and I get a lot of flack about this. We need to stop focusing on the fact that it's black history and just call it history. Mm -hmm. okay. Because um, I taught, I taught when I was in North, even though I was the science teacher, I had to teach social studies too. Okay. Um, like I was talking about being understaffed, right? But we went over philosophers, we went over, you know, um, certain types of inventions. It was never called Greek history. It was like, these philosophers are Greek, but this is history, right? Yes. So the focus wasn't on the fact that they're Greek. The focus is, this is what they said. We're still using some of these things today, right? And I think that <clears throat> focusing on the fact that it's Black history makes it seem individual when our impact on the world as Black and Brown people has been global. Mm. This, is, this is world history. This is right. history, period. Yes. Right? 
And yes, that's why absolutely. when we call it Black History, that's why, okay, well, it's February. Okay, well, no, no, this is, this is the impact that our people have had on the world. And the world wouldn't be what it is today without the impact of this culture or these cultures on the world. So it needs to be taught as that, in my opinion. It needs to be taught as that. I love that. Now, I do think it needs to be pointed out <laughs> that these were Black people. The same way we know, you know, that Socrates was Greek, his being Greek ain't the focus. The right. focus is what was his philosophy and all these other kind of things, right? So I think that it needs to be pointed out that these were Black people who did this, who brought this to the table. But I think the focus needs to be on how big of an impact they made. Because this society, this world, the economy, whatever, wouldn't be what it is right. without the impact. And if we focus on the impact, that's, you cannot deny that. Right. So people could choose to avoid certain parts of the truth. Right. But what people cannot do is say, well, this isn't impactful. Right. But once the light is on, you can't unsee it. Right. Absolutely. Right. So that's the first that's the first change I think that needs to take place. The second change that needs to take place, like you said, with rewriting, rewriting the book, black history, quote unquote, didn't just start with slavery. Like right. people, you know. I was a, a kid, like, okay, Martin Luther King, okay, Rosa Parks, okay. But, you know, we weren't taught about Hannibal. We weren't taught about, you know, civilizations that were thousands yeah, of years Africans ago. were sailing to this country before there was even a Christopher the Columbus. Centuries, <laughs> centuries before anybody else. You get what I'm saying? Like, so I think that if we're going to, listen, if we're going to teach history, we need to teach history. We, if we can learn about Chinese dynasties that took place 5,000 years ago, mm -hmm. I don't understand why we can't talk about African dynasties. You know what I mean? Like, right. it, it needs to be, and it needs to be a total revamp. You know, I'm big on stuff like that. I'm, I'm a visual learner. I'm big on like, okay, this map is not accurate. Right, yeah. <laughs> this map, map is not accurate. Africa is a lot bigger then even the map makers give it credit for. And I understand as a scientist about proportions and you don't want it to be the wrong shape on the globe, yada, 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 yada. Yeah. But you can sure figure out a way to make other things. Yeah. Figure out a way to get it right because the more that we make it seem as if this was not really that worth, you know, it's not really worth the time, the more the people just see nothing wrong with just skirting over it. Um, and... You can't, you can't have, you know, quote unquote, the villain writing the story. Right. Right. So right. if all of our history is taught by the colonizers, of course, they're going to like downplay the atrocities that they've committed and, right. you know, and frame it in a way that their perspective seems noble. You know what I mean? Like, right, like the going with the wind version of slavery where yeah, people like got decent not, living conditions and uh, people fell please. in love with their plantation owners. Like, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah, you, you fell in love with the person that bought you, right. you know, sold your family off. Like, be, people, be everybody a part of your community in front of you on a daily mm -hmm. basis. But yeah, we fell in love. Yeah. So I think that that's the second part. And um, the third, which I, I get a lot of kickback for, is the whole construct of the educational system is wrong. 
Like we are teaching public school kids how to become factory workers. Right. But that's which, not what it is anymore. Which actually is the design of public schools. It is. I mean, but the, even when it even when it started being like, okay, people aren't really working in factories. Let's focus on going to college. Then you started having these college prep programs. Right. right? Let's push but them. That's not effective. That's mm-hmm. not effective anymore because like most people nowadays, they go to college, they graduate hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt with no job. Especially, especially people who identify as black and brown because your college degree is equivalent to a white man's um, high school diploma. High school diploma. And now, mm-hmm. now you're in so much debt trying to catch up. And then even still, when you go to buy a house, if you live mostly around people that look like you, it's, it's just so systematic, but um, yeah. And I think that, um, I think the problem is the, the construct of the system. Like I was telling my husband and my husband, um, you know, his uncle is a, a carpenter and he was like, these, these public schools don't even have wood shop anymore. They don't have auto shop. They don't have right. home ec, right? So everybody kind of was like, well, let's get away from the trades. And let's push everybody to college. Mm-hmm. But now that's not effective, right? Right. Um, you, you know, I, I talk to him all the time. Um, like I mentioned before, my son has autism, right? So a lot of people feel like, okay, well, he's not going to fit into the construct of a regular school yet. I don't have a problem with that because creativity gets stifled out, right? right. So now when you're, if you go K to 12 and then go to college, you don't know what ideas you could have had creatively that you didn't have time for in your 8.30 to 3.30 day, right? right? We don't give the kids time to be creative. We don't give the kids time to be bored. We don't give the kids time to just sit and daydream. It's like every minute of the day, you have to be doing something physically productive. But all the innovation is coming through entrepreneurs. All the innovation is coming with people that have time to just think and let their minds wander. Right. But our school system is not set up for that. Right. Our wow, school system is still really set up. Our school system is still set up for people to clock in in the morning, you know, to sit at that desk in them rows or them columns, to put the widget on whatever this machine is, right. to eat lunch for this half hour and then clock out at the end of the day. Like our school system is still set up for that, even though technology and innovation and everything has moved past that. So now we're setting them up to fail, which yeah. is why the US is not the leader in technology anymore, which is right. why the U.S. is like behind because all these other um, countries and societies are evolving their, their education system along with how things are moving and we're not. Yeah, so, we actually import a lot of intelligence. We import we a lot of specialized skills from other countries because we're just not, we're not hitting the mark here. We're, we're not, not giving kids the time or the space. It's really about the space. We're not giving kids the space to listen. When a kid is, I could take my son, autism or not, when a five-year-old is bored, they'll sit and and, and imagine things. Kids yeah. come up with imaginary play things. They'll use a remote as a phone. They'll, you know, all those things are naturally inquisitive in kids, right? right. But then we the older they get, we teach them. That's not what that's for. Put that down. That's not what that's for. That's not what you use that for. You go and sit around and do, I mean, my parents, you want to sit around and do nothing? Pick up a break, pick up a broom. Like you can't have idle time. But where do you think people coming up with these ideas? 
They have yeah. time to sit, which is why, like you were saying, which is why people, you know, in, in Silicon Valley, people who are, you know, biomedical engineers, they give them that time. You work for Absolutely. Google, you got all the time in the world. You know why? You can take a nap if you want. <laughs> yeah. You know why? Because when you wake up, we don't know what, what idea you're going to come up with. So we'll give you your space. You know what I mean? But, but school is not driven towards that. And it's so, so sad. I, I think the well, problem is the construct of school. Like, right. we have to change that. It shouldn't it, be a, you know, people, you know, turning into robots. I get that there has to be order. Listen, I'm not saying that a K-8 to school should be a free-for-all. Right, right? but it's indoctrination. It is. It is. You know, it's how to stand in line. Like you said, how to stand in line, how to clock in, how to take your half-hour lunch, how to meet deadlines and this and that. And it's not about being expansive and creative and thinking outside the box and being individual all the things that you're going to need outside of these um you know outside of these walls but exactly. and think about the impact that this lockdown listen i i've been in contact with so many people that have come up with business ideas just because they couldn't leave their house yep they me and my husband have have started two businesses <laughs> you know it's like you can't leave the house there's only so much quote unquote work you can do from home, right? right? Once my students are done with their work, I'm done with work for the day. I've graded right. everything, right? But once we have this time and the space to sit still and let our mind wander, right? People are coming up with ingenious things. Absolutely. That never would have entered their mind if they were on that nine to five. You gotta that do this, hamster wheel. Exactly. And then after you clock out and you got to come home, you got to cook dinner, you got to help your kids with their, with their homework, you got to mow the grass, like not everything needs to be scheduled. Agreed. And I think, I think that's a benefit of coming out of this. One last question, even though I said my last question was going to be my last question, which okay. is just so interesting. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> a student comes up to you after you guys reopen right? And mm -hmm. says, ask for your opinion on the George Floyd incident and the riots and what's been happening. What's the school's approach to handling what's been going on in the past couple of months? The school's approach? All right, my district's approach is um, there are, you know, kind of like round, of, round the clock counseling for people who just feel overwhelmed or to people who don't know how to deal with their fear. Mm -hmm. um, and then my school's approach is a little more personal in regards to um, publicly acknowledging that this is a problem and it has been a problem. Um, I think it's really important for schools, teachers, whatever you know, adult the kid goes to. I think it's really important to point out that this, this was not a one-time thing. Right. That this has been happening for hundreds of years. And um, I think that the most important way to kind of get kids to relate is to make something personal. You know, um, the population of students in my school is, is not mainly Black. Um, like I said, we have a, a high immigration population. Um, yeah. so you know, maybe if I'm being generous, maybe 5% of the students in my school are black. Okay. Um, yep. And then um, 
there are some white kids, but most of the kids in my school, maybe 95, 90% of the students in my school are, you know, Latino. They're, you know, yeah. from mainly South American too, um, you know, um, but. Any, and even more oppressed group specifically yeah, right so now. So it's easier to relate what they've gone through personally with what they're seeing. Right. And even though there are clear distinctions racially of the treatment of people of color are still classified depending on what color, you know what right. I mean? Um, is the same, but it's about that feeling. You know that feeling you felt when that person came out and assumed you were causing trouble when all you were doing was picking up your little brother? You know that feeling that you felt like I'm not even doing anything? Yeah. That's the feeling we have. And even, even when, you know, I, I've had white coworkers reach out to me. Um, I'm only one of two black, <laughs> black people in the school. And I've had coworkers reach out to me um, over this lockdown and say like, you know, what is going on? And, and why, you know, why is there, some have said, why is there such this uproar and why? And I said, you, you sit there and count eight minutes. Yeah. Count. You complain when we got a fire drill. <laughs> yeah. And we have to inconvenience ourselves for that eight minutes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You, you physically watched somebody die. Yeah. For no reason other. So that's something you can't deny. You can't right. unsee that. Right. So it's one thing to say, you know, I can say, well, this coworker said this and I felt like that was racist. It's easy to be like, oh, you're exaggerating. Oh, everything's a race issue. No, but you saw this. You saw this. Yeah. And there's no, nobody has a viable explanation. Right. And so it's about the schools letting the students know it doesn't matter what I look like. Wrong is wrong. Right. Period. And it doesn't matter if I'm white, if I'm Latino, if I'm black, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Wrong is wrong. And when wrong is done, everybody who sees that it's wrong is responsible for doing whatever it takes to make it right. Right. Especially at the grade level that you're teaching, because what do we always tell children? Don't lie. You know, uh, you're going to get punished if you do something wrong. And trying to just explain it away as like, oh, well, that was just one person who did something bad or however, just to like breathe over it. Um, yeah, or even criminalizing the victim. Like, right. I, I don't care if he just got out of prison. No one has the right <laughs> to take someone's life. Unarmed. Period. Yeah. Period. Yeah. Shackled, unarmed, like, no, this is not a, you know, right. I didn't see him. He rode his bike out and my car hit his bike and I didn't see it. This is, right. this was an intentional thing. And, and it needs, it needs to be addressed as a bigger problem than just that specific case. It needs to be addressed as, look, this is what black and brown people have been going through since they got here. Right. Right. And for those, you know, people who are like, oh, well, we've made so many strides, like, <laughs> oh, we made so many strides. Oh, oh, if the, if the protesters were peaceful, I've had so many 
if they were peace, now they're looting and they're rioting. And I've said Martin Luther King was peaceful and they killed him. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So clearly, clearly it doesn't matter the what tactics we use. Right? And also one of the things that I've said like a million times is you can't go to your oppressor and ask them how how best to make them change. People don't change unless they're uncomfortable. And unfortunately, in this case, when you're talking about the specific giant that we're up against, it's all about dollars. It's all about dollars and power. So if you don't attack dollars and power, which is your retail location, Target, you know, this and that, because like, I get it. People are frustrated with just kneeling. Y'all have been ignoring that for the longest time. So, and also it's crazy to me, the people who um, defend the, um, the people who are so up in arms about the rioting. It's like, you're not even a business owner. You're an employee. Why are you fighting for corporations? They gotta be a-okay. Why weren't those corporations sending out representatives to give bottles of water to the people who were protesting then? Why aren't you doing something to make a change. You know, businesses have insurance. Like, it's just, it blows my mind when we're talking about the subject matter that we're talking about, you're talking about a brick and mortar. Yeah, it's it's what people choose to prioritize. You're prioritizing this physical building. And it's like the tiniest percentage of occurrences when you look at the peaceful protests, but it's like, it's like oh, somebody told me an example of like um, somebody getting their their uh, ankle stuck in between two rocks, right? And they're mm-hmm. like, help me, help me, my ankle's stuck. And the person is like, well, what about my ankle? What? <laughs> it's my ankle. Yeah, but I, yeah I, had, I had a conversation because um, my brother was saying, um, you know, so many of his coworkers and colleagues were saying like, well, what's wrong with saying all lives matter, right? And so my brother, um, listen, he's an engineer. He, he he's not used to like talking to me. He's like, listen, I don't, I'm gonna ask my sister. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I said, this is like this. This is like, if somebody says black lives matter and then somebody responds says all lives matter. To me, that's like going to a breast cancer awareness walk with a sign that says prostate cancer right. killed. Right. right? nobody goes to a breast cancer walk and says that no other cancer is important. Right. Right. But this is not the time or the place to talk about prostate cancer, right? We're talking about breast cancer. And, and if you really believed all lives matter, then would we need black lives matter? Right. Isn't black in all? Right. Right. All all lives lives cannot matter if black lives don't. Yeah, so if all lives matter, then you should be right next to me. Right. Because this life matters too. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, one of the things that in regards to the school's approach is to be honest and say, well, this country hasn't functioned as if all lives matter, right? Right. We had to make Black lives not matter in order to justify how we've been to Black people. And legislatively, in fact. Yes, they can't be considered (laughs) They can't be considered people. Otherwise, we'd be going against our own quote-unquote morals and values. Right, right. So for us to be able to justify it, then they're not people. Right. 
right? But if we taught if we taught history correctly, which is what I was saying, it's not even just about regular history. Like as a science teacher, technologically, okay, black people ain't worth nothing. Put your cell phone down. Put that down. Put that down. Put that down. Put that down. Because even the people, and it's not even about, um, you know, who owns this patent. It's not about it. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I can go all day. Thomas Edison didn't do that. That was his black assistant who came up with that. But because yeah. he's white, he could put like medical advancements, like science advancements, all kinds of things. All kinds of things have been stolen, just straight up stolen. I mean, Henrietta Lacks. That's just one. And that was the one that we know about and they made a movie about. But how many years were we not told about her? And That's how many one. others? How many? Uh, listen, for everyone that we know the story of, I'm sure there are a hundred. Because at the end of the day, the same way white people were saying, oh, there's no police brutality. Now you saw this one. You have no idea these unnamed people. Yep. You know what I mean? The unnamed people who, who have gone through the same thing, whose family line has been destroyed. Yep. Like the fact that people are now saying, I never knew this happened. I didn't know Tulsa happened. I didn't know this happened. What do you mean, Rosewood? What do you like? They had no idea. Yep. Because nobody wanted to listen to us, quote unquote, complaining. But this is not complaining. We're telling you what really happened. Right. And like you said, I'm not going to ask how, how is the most convenient way <laughs> for you. Exactly. The, now, you're not going to change unless you're uncomfortable. Give me what I deserve. Comfortable. Yes. Like I'm not, I'm not letting up. You know what I mean? Like I'm Absolutely. not letting up. It's, it's kind of like, it's, it's kind of like, um, you know, people talk about, uh, oysters making pearls. That sand is not going anywhere. <laughs> yep. The oyster has to change until that sand is no longer uncomfortable. We just got to stay being the sand. Okay. Well, You're going to be uncomfortable, but this discomfort going to make you change because I'm yeah. not moving. I mean, we got a lot of work ahead of us, a lot of work ahead of us. And I definitely, I definitely am going to keep in the loop with the school year. Um, keep me in mind for any um, opportunities to volunteer for things or anything like that. I do actually have a few friends in that area. Definitely. Um, but yeah, keep me in the loop. And you have to promise now, since I actually have it on recording, you got to promise to be back to the show. Since I'm recording, so you can't, I got the receipts. <laughs> definitely all right definitely. awesome heather thank you so much for your time truly appreciate it this has been an amazing interview i'm wishing you luck in the school year be safe for you your family all uh you know all your your pupils your kids and we will definitely <laughs> check on you guys and see how um how things are going she was dope right i told you guys awesome Thank you so much for listening this week. I appreciate the love, guys. Make sure you are liking, subscribing, and also make sure you're telling people about the show. Make sure you're letting people know the show's lit. It's okay. You can say it. Listen, it is what it is. I love you guys. Be well. God bless. Thank you for listening to Spicy Pecan Podcast. This is a wonderful media production.